Welcome to the Public Morality. In August 2019, CEOs of 181 most profitable corporations committed to moving toward a more inclusive model of capitalism and pay their workers fairly. This was an admission, albeit tacit, that shareholder primacy was unsustainable. But since that plague and the advent of the pandemic, little has changed in the several decade trend that saw corporate profits outpace worker salaries. If anything, it has gotten worse under the circumstances. In a newly released report by the Brookings Institution entitled Profits and the Pandemic, How Shareholder Wealth Soared and Workers Left Behind, details the income gap for many frontline workers has worsened in the midst of increased corporate profits. Meanwhile, vision of a more inclusive capitalism became a fleeting memory for many of the corporations that initially made the pledge. Joining me to discuss the Brookings Report is one of its authors, Molly Kinder. Kinder is a fellow at the Brookings Institution whose focus examines the present and future of work, especially for low-wage workers, women, and workers of color. Molly Kinder, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me, Byron. I want to begin this conversation by reading from the opening paragraph that you and your colleagues wrote on the Brookings site. Quote, over the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic has presented the country's leading companies with historic opportunity to reverse the decades-long trends of widening inequality and shareholder primacy, making change for workers seem possible. The pandemic shifted public sentiment about the, what workers deserve. Corporate leaders made pledges to adopt stakeholder capitalism and enhance racial and economic equity. A historically tight labor market pressured companies to increase compensation and enhance benefits and record profits filled company coffers with ample resources to raise pay. So my question to you is, what happened? Well, you know, despite all the potential of the past two years, um, and despite all those hopeful reasons we just read from our report, my colleagues Katie Bach, Laura Statler, and I found that actually when you look at some of the biggest companies in America, and, fr and frankly, they're some of the biggest companies in the world, who really benefited from the financial success of the pandemic? And did workers really get a fair shake of those gains? And what we found is that really on average, workers gained only modestly. And still at these 22 leading companies that we looked at, the vast majority of workers don't even earn enough today just to pay their basic bills. They don't earn a living wage. But when you look at how shareholders of these companies, how executives, how some of the billionaire founders and heirs did, we found that they uh, they really are the ones who benefited from the financial gains. And in a few cases, when some of these companies hit hard times early in the pandemic, really it was the frontline workers who experienced the brunt of those losses and oftentimes CEOs and shareholders were pretty insulated. So despite, you know, when we, when my colleagues and I started this exercise a, a year ago with these big questions, is the pandemic finally the moment when we will start curbing inequality and our leading corporations will finally put workers at the center? Unfortunately, we found that the system changed little and workers benefited very little. 
As I was reading your report, I was thinking back on the global financial crisis of uh, 07, 08, Mm -hmm. when banks were deemed too big to fail. Um, I couldn't help but sense from your report that such sentiment on the heels uh, of COVID has not been applied to the American worker. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, for the first year of the pandemic, um, when I was at uh, writing at Brookings, I wrote, I think, something like 25 different publications writing about essential workers and frontline essential workers. And I really felt there was a moment where society and maybe even the economy was starting to really value finally workers on the front lines. And I don't just mean workers on the front lines of the pandemic in terms of healthcare workers, but I mean, frontline workers, hourly workers, those who, um, you know, their, their paycheck comes in the hourly wages, which are overwhelmingly too little. Um, and it felt like we were at a moment where things were tipping, that people opened their eyes to how much sacrifice there was and how, you know, millions, tens of millions of workers were earning too little, but that society needed them and they deserved more. And so you can see that in public opinion polls. And it felt like policymakers, politicians were rushing to say how much they valued essential workers and big companies were putting out advertisements calling their workers heroes. Um, And yet, and this again was part of the reason why my colleagues and I took on this deep analysis is to figure out well, did that sentiment go anywhere? You know, did anything really fundamentally change for workers? Did the economy adjust so that corporations are actually living up to some of these bold pledges, both on the racial equity front, but also in shifting to a more inclusive um, stakeholder capitalism? And, you know, I think we felt very disappointed by the time we did all the number crunching to recognize that despite all these things that were in the favor of, of things changing, ultimately just not enough actually did change. Hmm. You, you sort of touched it on your last answer, but could you, for our listeners, put a face on the frontline worker? Is it a woman? Is it a person of color? Is it a white male? What's the face that, that dominates the frontline worker for you in your research? Yeah, so we we actually ha- actually crunched some of those numbers. We look particularly at what we call frontline essential workers. So who are the essential workers, um, you know, whose jobs in the pandemic were deemed they were working in industries that the government deemed essential industries. So they didn't have to shut down. They were critical to our nation's infrastructure and our functioning. And we we added the term frontline to that meaning who are those who couldn't do those jobs from home? So it turns out actually amongst essential workers, there are a lot of high paid workers in finance or accounting who were doing very critical jobs, but safely from their homes and they weren't exposed to COVID. So we really did a deep dive on who are these frontline essential workers. And, you know, I don't think this will be a surprise to listeners that that risky lower paid work was disproportionately shouldered by workers of color. Um, and compared to the, the um, you know, the, the representation of brown and black workers across the whole economy, they were disproportionately represented amongst frontline essential workers. Um, the other thing we found was that frontline essential workers were lower paid than the typical workforce. Um, and so um, at, at, within the essential workforce, there wasn't a clear gender dimension, uh, but typically if you're looking at 
uh, uh, frontline workers, we do typically think of women being disproportionately represented in some of those lower wage jobs. Um, and so, of course, when I did a lot of writing, I did tons of interviews and talking to workers, getting to know them, telling their stories, and then thinking about the policy implications. Um, you know, the, I think, you know, some of the face of that might be, a, you know, a retail worker or a grocery cashier or a home health aide. Um, or a, uh, a cleaner in a hospital. These are some of the occupations where we met a lot of these folks. We uh, wrote about their, their, the vast numbers of these workers in the economy, how underpaid they are, and how valuable their work is. And in fact, this research that we've just put out at Brookings, um, we looked at 22 of the most influential, the most successful, the most iconic companies in many of these sectors, from retail to grocery to pharmacies, you know, package delivery, e-commerce, hotels, and companies like Disney. And the headline there is that, you know, that over half of that workforce is non-white. And the vast majority of these workers are making less than a living wage, even at these companies that are phenomenally successful. I want to go back, if I could, just for a moment to the opening paragraph um, that I read. Uh, you stated that many corporate leaders pledged to adopt, quote, stakeholder capitalism, unquote. Elaborate on that definition, if you would. Yeah, so this was a really big deal coming up on three years ago. This pledge was, was made in August of 2019. And this was something like 181 of our country's leading CEOs signed this pledge through something called the Business Roundtable, which is essentially like a lobbying group for big businesses. And it was meant to represent this pretty major shift in the way corporate America views its purpose, its central purpose. And for decades, corporate America had said, our primary purpose as a company is to enrich our shareholders. And that was considered shareholder primacy. That's really the, the main point, which ultimately guided corporations' decisions. Um, at the end of the day, their primary responsibility was to make sure the owners, who are their shareholders, grew wealthier. And that, you know, decades of this philosophy has coincided with this massive problem in our country of widening inequality, where the rich have continued to get richer and um, you know, regular workers have fallen further behind. And we've seen that manifest in CEO pay that's gone through the roof with productivity of workers not matching their pay um, and really a very lopsided, imbalanced, unequal economy that's coincided with this, this very widely accepted belief that the purpose of a company is to enrich shareholders. Um, and so it was a big deal just shy of three years ago when a lot of these leading companies said, no, actually, we are, we are embracing something we're calling stakeholder capitalism. So, of course, we still have to have a responsibility to our shareholders, but we're also going to, uh, the purpose of a company should also be to benefit the communities that we're in, the workers that work for us, and society more broadly. And um, this pledge was meant to signal a new era for, for corporate America, a more inclusive and more equal one. Also the environment was one of the, one of the um, stakeholders. And, um, and that's really, and, and only about nine months later, the COVID-19 pandemic started. So what my colleagues and I wanted to understand was there's this 
really interesting case study right after this big pledge by all these major CEOs that it's not just their shareholders that should benefit. It should be workers and society. And within the pledge to workers, there was a commitment to pay workers fairly, which was not defined, just said pay workers fairly. But we wanted to dig in a little deeper to see if if anything really shifted, did any of these companies actually change their practices and live up to this ethos? Hmm. Now you, you sort of touched on it, but just for 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 clarity, the the, the timeline where we sort of start this shareholder primacy really begins around the end of the '60s, early 1970s. Is that correct? So the share, I mean, shareholder primacy is is tied often to Milton Friedman. It's been going, you're right, for decades. So this has really been the the accepted prevailing wisdom of corporate America um, is the shareholder, not stakeholder. That's a new concept. But for, since the 60s and 70s, this has really been the guiding light of companies. And it's it really has its roots back to Milton Friedman. Now, um, here's a direct quote. Um, from your report, uh, from I, I guess an individual you interviewed, quote, I have co-workers who stand all day serving people, and then they have to go pay for their own groceries with food stamps. Expand on that statement, if you would, and, and because it's far more nor- normative than perhaps many of us would uh, recognize. Right. I mean, that quote is from an amazing uh amazing individual named Lisa Harris. She's a Kroger cashier just out of outside of Richmond, Virginia. And we've featured her a lot in my writings because she's such a compelling individual and she speaks with such moral clarity on some of these issues. And she points out that the, the, the sort of moral outrage that in a grocery store context where her colleagues are serving customers who are bringing food home to their families which, you know, I visited her store at the start of the COVID pandemic. It was packed with people. These are some of the workers that continued to go to work when there was no vaccine and it was very dangerous at great risk to themselves. And the reality is that the wages at at major, I mean, Kroger is the largest standalone grocery chain in the country. It's one of the companies that we we researched in my report. the wages are very low. So still today, the average wage at, at Kroger is less than a living wage. And they, they don't state even a public minimum wage. So there are Kroger workers I've interviewed in West Virginia who are making $8 an hour. That's not enough to feed your family. In fact, it would put some households under the poverty line. And the reality is, Lisa's correct, that at each of these companies that we researched, there are workers who qualify for public assistance for food stamps and other social forms of benefit, even at companies where their profits are in the billions and they're enriching shareholders. And in fact, the um, GAO at the request of Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders not too long ago did a really uh, fascinating uh, study of the um, which employers, um, <clears throat> the largest employers of recipients of some of these public benefits. And you'll see, of course, McDonald's and Walmart and some of these companies, but you'll see Home Depot and Lowe's on that list, even UPS, some of these companies. So I think that that really strikes at the heart of of one of the big questions we asked in our report was, from an absolute level, are these successful companies paying their workers enough from an absolute perspective? And and what we tried to do was lay out not just a minimum wage, but we said a living wage. And that's measured by MIT to say, 
are these companies paying at least half, that's a low bar, but at least half of their workers enough just to pay their basic expenses. So they wouldn't have to turn to public benefits, um, that they would able to, to support a family. And unfortunately, the answer is that most are not. And I think that's a pretty shocking indictment of, of where we are with um, shareholder capital or stakeholder capitalism. If some of these extremely successful companies are, are like in Lisa's story, not even paying their workers enough to, to make do. I mean, that's really the height of irony because we looked at some of these in some of these corporations as the apex of capitalism, and yet um, part of their um, livelihood is to encourage workers, or you know, whether overtly or, in, um, or inadvertently, encourage workers to uh, use the government dole um, to make ends meet. So, I mean, I mean, that's sort of ironic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, it's it's very troubling to think that some of these corporations and and we document how much wealth these corporations generated just during the first nearly two years of the pandemic generated for their shareholders. It was a trillion and a half dollars in wealth and billions in dollars in profits. Um, and I mean, there's a handful of companies that struggled in the pandemic, but by and large, the headline was. These companies are extraordinarily successful. Most had their best years ever. And yet, when you look under the hood, you find that amongst their employees, I mean, some don't have any minimum wage. They're paying the federal minimum wage, which is only a little over $7 an hour. And the um, at the minimum wage at some of these companies, at the hours that they give their workers, would put families under the poverty line. Not all of them, but, you know, that's a, that's a again, a... A shocking, it's a shocking reality given these are the companies that are considered the biggest successes. And even though some companies do better than that benchmark, I think, you know, the fact that they don't pay a living wage is such a problem. I mean, a living wage, if you ask workers what they want, they want a living wage. They want to be able to make sure they can meet all of their basic expenses, that they can go to sleep at night knowing they're going to pay their utilities. They can put gas in the car. They can buy food for their family. They can afford a basic apartment. Um, and I mean, this is not even allowing room to save or invest or have a, a nest egg for the inevitable moment where your car breaks down and suddenly you don't have enough money to, to, to fix it. But I mean, I think that we should have a, a social compact where we would expect the most successful companies in this country to pay that, I would consider that a fair wage, just a decent family sustaining wage. And unfortunately, we're still very far off that mark. Also, discuss if you would, uh, what your report calls the societal consequences of a sub living wage. How does that impact society? Well, I mean, my colleagues at Brookings just before the pandemic put out this amazing piece of analysis, um, Martha Ross and Nicole Bateman, it was called Meet the Low-Wage Workforce. And they found that 53 million American workers, which is a, just under half of all workers, it was about 44%, earn less than this living wage that I'm talking about. They're low-wage workers. They don't make enough money to make ends meet. And that's just shocking in a country as wealthy as America that we've got so many people who are just struggling to get by. And it has big consequences. I mean, one is 
is it's you know all taxpayers ultimately are are are, comp- are 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 contributing to having to pay what employers won't, which is for food and for health care and all these basics. I mean the the fact that we need such a large social safety net is a part a reflection of the fact that employers simply aren't paying enough. But even more than that, it's just the human toll this takes on on just the you know the mental health the the um, stability, the ability of families to support themselves and support their children, that economic anxiety and that struggle um, is really a consequence of of these low paying jobs. Um, And so I think the fact that, you know, we allow for this as a society in public policy because we haven't raised the minimum wage as a country in so long, we, we, we allow employers to to pay their workers wages that are well below what is a basic, what would base cover their basic expenses. So we allow for this situation. And I think it has, you know, long-term generational consequences too. We see this in the wealth gap as well, in the racial wealth gap and how hard and how our social mobility is broken down. I mean, if you're trying to raise a family and you can't make your basic bills, you're not going to be able to invest in your children. And we're seeing that in some of the rates of how you know, the children are not getting ahead of their parents' lot in life. And while the, the rich keep getting richer, um, we're, we're seeing everyone else fall further behind. So I think there are just dramatic consequences for society. I mean, to your last answer, could, I mean, could, could we say it in, in, in another way that the immediate self-interest of some, whether in the form of, of uh, corporate profits or consumer demands, is is greater than our um, perceived collective self-interest. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to put it because you're also not even just framing it as decisions that corporations are making, but also some consumers as well. And um, you know, we all make choices of where we're putting our consumer dollars and whether or not we are supporting businesses that take the high road and do the right thing for their workers um, or put, you know, low prices or consumer needs first. Um, I think we all are collectively buying into this system. You, you know, I, I raised that question that way because, um, I, I mean, it's hard to escape it, but many of the products that we as Americans uh, consume have a story. And in some cases, that story is one of exploitation. So if I'm not factoring the exploitation of, say, a young child when I purchase athletic shoes, chances are I'm not considering the worker who may be earning an insufficient wage. Is is there a way to address what, these are my words, I'm calling benign acceptance of the current dilemma uh, that you address in your report? You know, I think the real challenge um, when it, when we devolve this into sort of individual responsibility to make better consumer choices, <clears throat> is these are the most prevalent, popular, mainstream companies in America. I mean, we looked at <clears throat> Amazon and Walmart and Lowe's and Disney and Hilton and CVS and Walgreens and um, Kroger. I mean, you can't you you go to any any community of any size in America, you're going to see one of these companies, Dollar General. This is really where often Americans have choices to shop. And I'm not absolving us of our collective. We, we could all be doing more. We could ask harder questions. But 
at some point, this is our, this is our, this is our system. These are the companies that are thriving. And there's actually not a lot of information for individual customers. A lot of these companies don't even publish their wage statistics. They don't say what their company minimum wage is. You know, Lowe's, Home Depot, and Dollar General won't tell you what their minimum wage is. And it's actually quite hard to parse out what even their average wages or what their typical worker makes. Um, companies are not required to disclose a lot of this information and they don't. So we had to work really hard to get data from some of these companies and find ways to shine a spotlight on what, what workers are actually earning. Um, and so I, I think, you know, certainly there are companies that stand out as, as excellent high road companies. And I would put Costco at the top of that list. They pay their minimum wage is $17 an hour, but their average wage is 24 you know, their, their workers stay for years and years, and it shows you what a good, you know, how much they value those jobs. They're excellent, decent jobs for people. And you contrast that to many of their retail peers, they they just are heads and shoulders better. But I don't necessarily know that the average consumer knows this, that information's not at the ready. So it, you know, to, I think there's a, a long way to go to make sure that, that customers and consumers are empowered with information to know how to make those choices between companies because right now it's not at the ready and that ultimately i think where we came out in this report is we need real big policy reform that's going to force these companies to change um i don't think i think some good can be done with you know consumers making more enlightened choices but ultimately i think the system has to really change and that's going to have to come from the top now molly as i, as I read your report it, in my view, provided a, a much-needed nuance and uh, what is too often o- oversimplified economic data. I mean, for, I mean, for example, the March jobs report uh, said the U.S. economy added 431,000 jobs and employment fell to uh, 3.6%. Now, I am old enough to remember that if, when those numbers would have created dancing in the streets. But the reality is that economics is social science, and now such numbers barely move the needle. So, so when you add the inflation that many are, are, are facing, the war in Ukraine, so in a sense, the reality of the workers featured in your report really hide in plain sight. Your thoughts? I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of our findings suggest that some of the dominant media narrative over the past year um, is too black and white. It's not nuanced enough. And, you know, we've heard a lot about this, you know, great, great resignation and labor shortage and these headlines that worker wages are on fire, especially for some of these workers who historically have made low wages in fast food and leisure and hospitality. And our report definitely lends some credence to that in the sense that wages have increased nominally um, at, for most of the workers that we, at the companies that we looked at. But inflation has taken such a big bite out of the, 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 the real power of those wage increases. So we started our analysis looking just before the pandemic started in January 2020, so just over two years ago. And you just referenced the March jobs report. If you look at that time period of January 2020 to this most recent March, inflation is up over 11%. And that immediately makes your wage increase that much less uh, be able to purchase that much less. And, you know, Lisa Harris, who we talked about before, after 14 years of working at Kroger, she finally, for the first time ever, makes over $15 an hour. 
But she told me that when she goes to, you know, pay for her gas or, or buy her groceries, she's really not feeling that wage increase because of all this inflation. Um, so what we found was that yes, worker wages were up, but inflation took a huge bite out of that. And still after all of that, most workers at these major companies that we analyzed still don't pay their workers enough to pay their bills. And then we contrast that to who are, we consider almost the real winners of the pandemic economy, which is the, the wealthy shareholders and corporate executives who saw just really large increases in wealth due to the soaring stock prices. Um, so we have a really striking finding that the shareholders of just these 22 companies, their wealth went up a trillion and a half dollars um, which was more than 50 times all the extra pay to all 7 million workers at those, co those companies. And shareholders, as we know, are disproportionately very wealthy. So it's the wealthy who are getting a lot of the, the, the gains. And it's you know hourly workers who did see a little bit of a pay increase really aren't feeling it that much and experience a lot less than the wealthy shareholders. And I would add to that, uh, that it is those frontline workers that you highlighted that uh, are more likely to face the brunt of any um, financial challenges on, in terms of uh, layoffs, furloughs, uh, uh, less hours, more so than the shareholders or CEO pay. Talk about that if you would. You know, that's a, I'm, I'm so glad you raised that. Um, you know, of the 22 companies that we researched, um, Laura, Katie, and I found that over half of them, what we are, what we call like clear pandemic winners. They had some of their best years ever. They really benefited from the economy over the last few years. So that's retail and e-commerce, but a smaller number of the companies actually hit hard times. You know, hotels were shut down. Disney had to close its parks. Some of the fast food chains, um, at least early in the pandemic, they reduced store hours. You know, they saw a real hit to some of their profits. Um, and what we looked at was, well, when those losses happened, when times were bad, who really bore the worst of that economic pain? And we found it was by and large hourly workers who already had the least cushion to, to, to sort of lean on in hard times. There was almost 400,000 furloughs just at the companies that we looked at, and additionally, um, quite a lot of layoffs. And while you know the, the U.S. government, to their credit, did a historic um, amount of investment in terms of enhanced unemployment benefits, you know, in talking to workers who experienced these furloughs, many of them are low wage. They had very little savings to fall back on, and it was actually hard to get benefits. It, sometimes it took months to get a check, and there were so many delays, and there was so much hardship. And I, I kept hearing people referencing. Thanksgiving being this really tough moment where there just wasn't money for the kids for Thanksgiving. It was just something that sort of seared into my, into my consciousness, having interviewed a bunch of hotel workers um, who were displaced in the pandemic, a lot of hardship, economic hardship. Um, and you contrast that. So what happened to the shareholders of these companies and what happened to the CEOs and well, share prices typically did, take a dip early in the pandemic at these companies that weren't doing well, they bounce back really fast. So if you just take Hilton, for example, Hilton, its share price recovered to pre-pandemic levels, not even a year into the pandemic at a time when, uh, you know, at least a third of its workforce was still furloughed. They still haven't brought back all their workers after all this time. And their share price is up, I think about 30%. So their, their shareholders are doing great. 
Whereas a lot of the workers, you know, some of their housekeepers are still out of a job. Um, and then the other thing that was very striking that I don't think the, the news media really picked up on enough was in almost half of the companies that were hard hit and experienced losses in the first year of the pandemic, the boards of directors changed the way they calculate the performance pay that their CEOs earn, which is the vast majority of the way that CEOs get paid is not a base salary, it's stock based on their performance. Um, almost half of the companies changed the goalpost. And the result was that the CEOs that shouldn't have earned any performance compensation earned over $40 million collectively in pay because those boards shielded them from the financial losses in those calculations. And this often happened at the same companies where workers were furloughed, they were laid off, or their, their income went down because of lost hours. So it was a really striking contrast in how often workers with the least experience the worst pain and the richest were shielded. I'm speaking with Molly Kinder of the Brookings Institution about a new report that she co-authored entitled Profits and the Pandemic as Shareholder Wealth Soared, Workers Were Left Behind. Um, the, the report is available on the Brookings Institution site, and I encourage all listeners to, to go to it and read it for themselves. Molly, is the underlying story here that there was an implied assumption and I'm going back to sort of that initial question of, 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 about the, the plagues that many CEOs took, that the negative toll associated with the pandemic would include many corporations would now um, undergoing a much needed correction, but that correction has not come to fruition. Is, is that the underlying story here? I think that's right. I think the, the, the sort of interesting pandemic test when there were so many reasons to think the system would change and that we would see different outcomes for workers and different behaviors by corporations that we didn't see change, I think shows we can't wait for companies to voluntarily do the right thing. Something that really struck Katie, Laura and I is we, you know, we tuned in to seven quarters of earnings releases by 22 companies. So it was like something like 140 earnings calls over this time period. And we listened to what kind of questions investors asked executives at these companies. And never did we hear a question, even when you know workers were furloughed or where lives were being lost in these places when there was no vaccine and COVID was so terrible, we never heard any questions from investors about worker welfare. And when they did ask questions about things like wages going up, it was often from a perspective of, do you really need to do this? And how soon can we end this COVID pay bonus? Um, so we we very much saw the pressures that, that companies are under from the current system. We're still at the end of the day, CEO pay is tied to share price. And um, everything is about the next quarter of earnings. And as a result, we see decisions by companies to put billions of dollars of their elevated profits into stock buybacks, which enrich their shareholders and not into worker wages increases. Um, so there were a lot of decisions that were made by companies that show that this notion of the shareholder first still is so baked into the system and to the incentives that they face that it's actually quite hard for these companies to break out and, and make more meaningful progress. Um, even when you know the public is so sympathetic to their workers, they've made these pledges, 
Um, and when, um, you know, the, 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 the shortage of workers is even forcing them to raise wages, we still didn't really see a real shift in the system. Um, and so I think where we landed was we can't wait. You know, this was a good a time as any for real change to happen. And we didn't see it. And ultimately, we think that the system has to be forced to change. It's just not going to voluntarily do that itself. And ultimately, this returns us to the debate between a minimum wage versus a, a living wage. And how do you respond to those that cite it was never the purpose of a minimum wage to be a living wage? And it was more designed for a sort of a much needed experience to enter into the workforce. How do you respond to that argument? Well, I would say where we are right now is nowhere near adequate, even if the purpose was never to sort of fully support a family with a minimum wage. We are so far from any basic level of subsistence. I mean, Congress has not raised the minimum, the federal minimum wage in so many years at 725 is, I mean, it's, it's just pennies at this point, especially with the most recent inflation, even the minimum wage increases that went into effect at the state and local level, a lot of them are not even keeping pace with inflation. So we are, where we are is just completely inadequate. I mean, even if you can justify a lower minimum wage because we need some starting point for people who are just getting a foothold in their careers and that ultimately we would hope they would move up into better paying jobs, I think the level that we're at at a federal level is just completely inadequate. Um, what we found is if you look today with today's inflation, a living wage nationally is eighteen fifty an hour. It might have even gone up since last month because of all this inflation, and we're at seven twenty five an hour. I mean, you cannot support uh, you can't support yourself on seven twenty five an hour. And keep in mind, a lot of these jobs are part, only give part time hours, so we're not even talking about multiplying that by a forty hour work week. Um, so, you know, we feel very strongly that our minimum wage laws are inadequate. It's There's been some help at the state and local level in certain places that have, have done far better than what the federal government's level is. Um, but still, it's just not, it's completely inadequate. And, and the reality is, my colleague Martha and Nicole's research shows that this idea that we start at this low wage, I mean, my first job was a minimum wage job bagging groceries. And I, you know, I've advanced in my career. There's this kind of American notion that we've got to have people start out low and they'll pull themselves up from the bootstraps and we'll see all this mobility. You know, when 44% of your workforce is making wages too low to, to pay even basic needs, this notion of a, of, a, of a pathway up and we can start low and people end at a better level is just broken in this country. A lot of people who are not, you know, a lot of the, the low wage workforce as documented by my colleagues are not young single people in high school and, and in their early 20s. They're in the middle of their careers and they have families. And I think it's completely unjust that we would allow for wages to be so low that it would create the kind of economic hardship that we see. And, and even having that conversation is complicated by the fact that you, you cited um that a living wage would be $18 um, and some change per hour. But if, you, but if you're working in San Francisco, Boston, or Washington, D.C., I mean, it's tough to make it work for $18 an, uh, an hour in those cities. Right. And the, and the number I cited is a, a national figure. It's just average. And of course, the cost of living varies enormously between where I live in Washington, D.C. and some other places 
where you you can make do on much less. So that that national average, you know, obscures the, the geographic variation. I mean, certainly 1850 an hour is not going to do that much in a place like San Francisco. Um, but I'm from Buffalo, New York, and you can do a lot more with the same salary there. Um, and I think so that there is some, you know, there are, there are higher, a lot of places with higher cost of livings have implemented a higher minimum wage. I mean, Washington DC has a $15 minimum wage, um, which is still not a living wage, but it's, it's, it's double, it's more than double what the federal is. So, um, you know, I think there is scope for individual locations to say, what is our cost of living here? And how do we make sure that we raise the floor so that, you know, our service workers and our frontline workers and our hourly workers, um, they can, they can, they not only can survive, but they can actually make ends meet, which is what we should be striving for is not a subsistence level, but um, a more decent level of, of wages. Well, in fact, um, in the report, you have a chart um, where you examine the poverty rate, the U.S. median wage, and you have a living wage. And most of the corporations that um, you followed fall below um, all, practically all except for a couple fall below them, the living wage, but most of them are below the poverty rate. Well, actually, no. So I would say the the median, the table we have looks at the median annual compensation at these companies. So the companies have to report this. It's required by the SEC in their annual disclosure. They have to give the annual take-home pay of their median employee. And what we found was um, the vast majority of these companies, that median pay the, of like the their if you lined up all their workers and took the one right in the middle is less than a living wage at almost all the companies. There's only a handful of companies where your typical worker makes more than that, that national living wage. And that's, you know, companies like UPS, for example, and Costco pay their workers um, uh, definitely a decent wage. Not all of them, um, but um, at least at the median. So about half of their workers the vast majority don't. A handful of companies, particularly in the lowest paid industries, which is not as surprising, fast food being one of the lowest wage industries, their median worker, in part because they're only getting part-time hours, they have low hourly wages and they only get part-time hours, that some of those companies, that would put their median worker below the poverty level for a household with um, at least two people in it. So... Um, but I wouldn't describe that. That's not the typical company in our analysis. The typical company in our analysis would pay higher than poverty wages, but significantly less than a living wage. I have a two-part question for you. How much does the organic nature of progress play into the advancement? Like say, for example, advancements in technology eliminated certain types of jobs, uh, uh, I don't know, travel agents, if you would, or bank tellers. Um, so how much uh, does that play into it? And how much does globalization play into this phenomenon that the rest of the world is caught up to the United States? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. A lot of these jobs that these frontline jobs in the service sector and retail and e-commerce, they are absolutely affected by technological change and globalization. And just the, the shifting way that consumers are now, you know, 
ordering things, even since the pandemic started. I mean, the pandemic has hastened technological shifts. So, and this is something that came up, you know, companies reported this in their earnings calls, a company like Chipotle, so many more people are now using their, their, their app, same as Starbucks. People are ordering their food on their app. They're going through automated lanes. You know, everyone, the reason why Amazon saw such a huge increase in their profits um, during the pandemic was the shift to online, online orders. People weren't going to the store anymore. They were just clicking and things were showing up at their door. Um, you saw, you know, UPS and FedEx, some of their, their business was affected by the reality that people were shifting their, their consumer trends and technology plays a really big role in this. And not only just in, in, you know, your phone or your app or enabling online ordering, um, but technology in the stores too, or in the warehouse has shifted some of these jobs as well. And I, you know, I've, this is something I've researched in a different capacity in different roles, and it's somewhat of a mixed bag. Um, I think some of these jobs that have been um, growing are higher wage jobs. So warehouse jobs in a lot of these stores um, where they're fulfilling online orders, um, which is sort of a manifestation of this technological shift and the different ways that consumers are shopping. Sometimes those are higher wage jobs than a retail salesperson on the floor, um, but they're very different jobs and they tend to be, have a higher turnover and they're harder on the body and they're not necessarily jobs that people stay a career in. Um, and then on the front end, you're seeing, you know, things like automated checkout or, um, you know, there's a, there's a Starbucks workers telling me that, you know, people used to come in and order from them and now they just walk in the door and pick up their order and that's it. Um, and so I think there, that there's a lot of questions about the quality of those jobs, the way those jobs are changing. Are they better paying, but are they also higher? Are they jobs that people are more satisfied with? What about the sort of physical toll that it takes? So I think there's a lot of big questions about the way some of these jobs are shifting and changing um, that I think are still a live debate about whether or not these are good or uh, on net, these are, these are positive advancements for workers or not. Um, I think we write a little bit about, you know, Amazon's dominance and Amazon, of course, has, has added so many workers to their payrolls since the start of the pandemic and have really cracked down on um, unions organizing. And so I think you can see some of the discontent among workers, in part for the job quality aspects of some of these jobs that are, are now so shaped by technology but also in some of the um, pay and benefits as well. And so you've seen Starbucks and Amazon are two of the companies we feature had the most, um, you know, some of the most high profile union organizing. And I think that sort of labor discontent and the fierce reaction you're seeing from companies is showing some of those tensions and some of those pain points. Um, some of it has to do with technology or, or the way that Amazon uses technology to monitor its workers or have these productivity targets. And then I think some of it is, is more human aspects of pay and benefits and respect. Um, so anyways, I think it's a, it's a really live question. Um, and I think that the jury is out. I do think this notion that technology is replacing jobs and eliminating jobs is perhaps less of a concern when we're, we're in such a labor shortage. Um, but I do remain concerned about whether these advances are ultimately at the benefit of the worker. Well, just giving your last response, it, it doesn't sound, at least to me, there is an, an incentive for corporations to change um, the trajectory short of um, 
some involvement by the federal government, dare I say. In terms of technology or just in terms of overall how they treat workers? Just in just terms of overall how they treat workers when you oh, factor yeah. in globalization, when you factor in technology um, and you factor in the practices they're already doing, what's the incentive to change? Right. And I, and I would just add to the hopper to that to that mix that, you know, a big emphasis of our report is on the incentives of the system that pushes corporations to make decisions that reward shareholders in the short run over making jobs better for workers and making pay go up. And that's, you know, we see in things like stock buybacks and dividends and, and um, you know, excess profits and, and sort of paired alongside um, workers who don't make a living wage. So all of that together, I think, does ask the question, so what do we do about this? If companies have this set of incentives that's working for them that that you know the shareholders are doing well the companies many of these companies have their best years ever they've grown in market um th their market cap has gone up they've grown um they've grown in staff size i mean this this is working for them and ultimately investing in workers is expensive and we show that it's not um inimical to company performance to have take a high road approach that companies like Starbucks and even UPS to some extent that have higher wages, lower turnover, longer tenure, and still have shareholders who are very happy and doing very well and company, strong company performance. It is possible, and we think companies should voluntarily adopt a higher-minded, higher road approach um, that benefits workers, but that's still the exception. And so where we and in our report is we feel very strongly that we need real policy reform and structural reform, that companies are not going to get there on their own. Um, and we need changes in laws. We need changes in policies where workers have more voice. The floor for wages is higher. They have more ability to exert um, influence at corporate governance. Um, and that ultimately we have more information. We can hold these companies to account better if they were forced to share more about their pay practices and what, what workers really made. I think consumers would hopefully change some of their behaviors if they knew uh, what was actually going on behind the scenes. The title of the report by the Brookings Institution, Profits and the Pandemic, How Shareholder Wealth Soared and Workers Left Behind. Our guest for this hour has been Molly Kinder of the Brookings Institution. Molly, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the public morale. And I hope that um, a lot of eyes uh, pick up this very, very important analysis. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me, Byron. And thanks for your really thoughtful, wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.